Well, I'm always uh, curious what it would have been like to have been around in a certain city or region the day of or the day after a groundbreaking or perhaps historic alterating type of event. And a couple of these things come to mind and perhaps you've been, been curious about them. What would it have been like to have been there when that happens? Uh, one of the first things I always think of is what would it have been like to be in Berlin in May of 1945? What were the streets downtown area of Berlin the day after World War II was pronounced as over? The Nazi regime had been finalized, it had been done, it is kaput, it is gone. A few weeks after the suicide of Adolf Hitler, imagine probably the joy and the camaraderie that the people began to feel uh, at that notion. How about this one? What do you think Brooklyn was like on April 16th, 1947? The diners, the barbershops, the pubs, the stoops, the day after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. Imagine the conversations and the camaraderie built between people for the first time seeing an African-American play in the major leagues of baseball. How about Cape Canaveral on July 25th, 1969? Now, probably a lot of us wouldn't have access to, to be at NASA's headquarters, but imagine the rippling effects of the stories from Neil and Buzz telling people, man, this is what it was like. We placed our own two feet up on the moon. Like, that's just, just mind-blowing to be the first people to ever do something like that. Some of you might actually remember this one. What was Champaign-Urbana like? It was a Sunday on March 27th, 2005. Because the night before, the University of Illinois mounted a 15-point comeback against the Arizona Wildcats to go to the national championship game for that year's NCAA tournament. What would it have been like to be there, perhaps the day, the Sunday, the week after a historic groundbreaking event? That's the train of thought I want you to keep this morning as we dive into today's text. What would it have been like after if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 9 as we set up for today's message. We are in a 28-week-long a study through the 28 chapters of the book of Acts. Today is week 8, so thus we are in chapter 8. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to get out those note sheets. You can follow along with us on the app. But if you have your Bibles, follow along with us. We're going to be in Acts chapter 8 today. One of my favorite chapters in all of not just the book of Acts, but all of Scripture. Now, I want you to imagine stepping into a church service some 2,000 years ago. No comfy seats, um, no air conditioning, uh, stone colonnades everywhere. There would have been kind of like these, these spots for people to sit. And you would have walked in and you would have noticed three main attributes of everyone in this room up until that point. You would have noticed three things that virtually everyone had in common. Number one, everyone would have been Jewish. At this point, everyone would have been, been born ethnically Jewish or they would have made some type of conversion to consider themselves Jewish. Number two, everyone you saw would follow the Torah and the Mishnah, some 630-something rules, laws, to welcome someone's life to follow God as closely as they could. And then if you were a man in that cr crowd, uh, they all, would have all had one thing in common, which was circumcision. They would have all been circumcised on the eighth day. For centuries, this is what it meant. This is what it looked like. This is how you knew you belonged in the family of God. And so you walk into church that day and you find your spot in your area because everyone had a spot and area they were told to sit. The men would sit here. The woman would sit over there. The Jews would sit over there. 
The Gentiles would sit over here in this area. Even the eunuchs had their own spot because they were kind of like, we're not really sure where to put them and how they fall in line. So we're going to give them their own special region. And then the following week, you walk in and it begins to look vastly different. Something changed, something happened leading up into that Sunday. And you would probably want to know, What happened? Seemingly overnight, perhaps in a few days, a few weeks, maybe a month or so, where the gathering of people of God went from being something homogenous, something where everyone more or less looked the same, act the same, talked the same, it was fairly predictable and orderly, to now you are seeing people who look vastly different than before. People who you would have never thought would have ever stepped through those doors to a church service to worship your same God. And not only are they coming in, but they're coming in with a boldness and a confidence that they know for sure that they belong. Acts chapter 8 is kind of what happens, and that's what we dive into this morning. Follow along with me. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 1. It says, and Saul approved of their killing, and all that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. Skip to verse 4 with me. It says this. It says, then those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks and impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was a great joy in that city. You know, last week we picked up in in chapter 7 that that persecution began. We talked about this man by the name of Stephen who was the first Christian martyr, the first person to lose his life for the sake of the gospel. And it says as a result of this persecution, those early church disciples were caused to scatter. But it says wherever they went, they preached the gospel. Meaning when they went to new cities, new towns, met new people, they were preaching the gospel always. Now, we could say that for us, it means something maybe perhaps similar. That if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, wherever you go, wherever you work, whoever you live next to, whatever you click on, whatever you share, whatever you post, you ought to be at least setting up gospel conversations. So we learn about Philip. And Philip goes to this place called Samaria. And I want to remind some of us, or if not most of us, that the Samaritans and the Jews did not like each other. So a quick history lesson. We're going to have a little map here to kind of uh, unpack this a little bit for us. So up until this point, everything in the New Testament and perhaps a lot of the Old Testament is happening here. Jerusalem. This is the center of God's people. This is where things belong. Everything flowed out of there. Well, about 600 years prior to this time, there was a king up here in the region of, at the time, Samaria, and he came and he had a conquest. And he captured Jews, but he only kept the best ones. And he took his favorite Jews, the best-looking Jews, the strongest Jews. So, a.k.a., I would not have made the cut, is what he's kind of saying there. And he took the best of the best, and then he took them out up to, uh, back up to Samaria, and then he spread them out through the region of this area. And for centuries, the Jewish people married non-Jewish people. For centuries, they worshipped pagan false gods. For centuries, they did not follow the Torah. They did not listen to God's design for who he had called them to be. They were half-breeds. You ever see one of those um, house divided flags before? 
Like people post them in their front yard or next to their television. It's usually one of those things of like, yeah, we kind of root for two teams here. Some people, well, we root for Michigan and Michigan State. I've seen a couple around in the area where it's like, well, some of us root for the Cubs. Others of us root for the Cardinals. Now, I don't know how a marriage lasts between those two. I'm a Dodger fan myself, so I just kind of get to write them all off, if you, you know what I'm saying. Or maybe when a celebrity breakup happens, everyone wants to know, are you team Brad or team Angela? You team Ben or team J-Lo? This is important. I need to know so if we can maintain a relationship. That's exactly what is not happening here. We're not talking about some little tiffs. We're not talking about things in which people can't seem to get on the same page. Or it's like, you can have your thing, I'll have mine. We are talking about pure, unadulterated blood feud, racism, hatred, and disgust for those other people. So much so, if you were to turn to Luke chapter 9, you'd get a glimpse of how Jewish people viewed the Samaritans. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He stops in a town of Samaria and a couple of the disciples ask, Jesus, do you want us to call fire down from heaven so that all these people may burn? And Jesus is like, um, no. This is is not, not how we do things. It's just a few moments later, Jesus says, let me show you my heart for all people. And he tells them the parable of the good Samaritan. These people do not like each other. We're talking about racism. We're talking about persecution. And Philip is forced to go to them because of the persecution he is facing. He goes to that region, to those people, and he shares the gospel of Jesus. He performs many signs, wonders, and there's a great joy because they start to lean in. And we find out about one Samaritan in particular who would have even rubbed Philip even more the wrong way. Picking up in verse 9. It says this, it says, now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in this city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great and all of the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and they exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. You want to see a magic trick? I'm going to turn this pencil into rubber. Ready? Did you see it? I know you're super impressed, right? How about this one? You guys want to pick a card, pick a card, any card? Okay, we're going to say this is your guys' card, okay? You all got it? This is your card here. You want, this is going to be really impressive. Just wait. See, okay, you guys got it over there. There's your card. Okay, we're going to shuffle them up here. How are you guys doing? You guys having a good Sunday thus far? You guys didn't know I could do magic, did you? Ready? There it is. Is that your card? No, it's completely wrong. I don't know any magic tricks. I'm just completely messing it up. I thought about maybe I should learn a little trick for that. What Simon is doing, he's not doing some little cheap magic tricks. He didn't go to Disneyland on the way out, stopped at the magic stores, like, you want to watch me bite this quarter in half, and it's really just a piece of plastic that folds over. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about sleight of hand tricks. We're talking about someone who practiced, in essence, demon possession. 
Someone whose dark magic and sorcery led them to have a poison and imprisonment of the soul to which they could perform signs and wonders. But here's the craziest thing. I don't know if you picked up on it. This whole entire region, this city, this town followed Simon because they're like, he does cool things though. He's got some sweet tricks up his sleeve. And then Philip kind of saunters in. Hey guys, oh, you can't walk? Boom, you can walk. You've been, you've been had a disease for decades? Boom, healed. Oh, you got an arm that doesn't work? Boom, strength, it can work now. And their eyes just get big and they're like, man, Simon was cool. Simon had some cool pilot tricks, but this guy, this Philip dude's got the real deal. And they go up to Philip, Philip, how can you do this? How do we know where this power comes from? Because Simon was I, but you even I err. And he's like, it's the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ lives in me and he will live in you too. And they say, we're in. We want to know this. And even Simon is like, yeah, count me in too. He explains the gospel message. He explains Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, that anyone who believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then Jesus, his spirit lives in you to give you the power to live out for his kingdom and his glory. And even Simon believes and is baptized. Then Luke, the author of Acts, gives us something interesting in verses 14, 15, and 16 that we can't overlook. He says, so when the apostles in Jerusalem... Right, So going back down south, heard that the Samaritans accepted the word of God. They sent Peter and John, think of the, 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 the forefathers, the two pillars of the early church, down to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit, it says in verse 17. Some of you are like, hey, oh, 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 hold up. Eric, you've always taught us and shown us in Scripture that we receive the Holy Spirit when we repent, confess, and believe in that public declaration. Why does it seem like something else is happening here? And it's time for us to remind ourselves that the book of Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. And what is happening here is taking the entire cultural context and history of these two people groups into consideration. What this text does not mean, it does not mean that a pastor, an elder, an apostle is required to pray over you in order for you to receive the Holy Spirit. What this passage does not mean, does not mean that, well, you get a JV spirit to start, but until Eric comes and prays with you, or one of the elders comes and anoints you with oil, then you get varsity level spirit. That's not what's happening here in this text, but is descriptive of something important. You see, if you were to skip forward a few verses, you would see that Simon then later goes to Peter and John and says, I want this power. Can I pay you for this power? And Peter and John respond with essentially, yo, that's not how it works. We can't control how the Holy Spirit moves. All we know is that by faith through repentance, you receive the Holy Spirit. It's not ours to control. And so it's important for us to remember when it comes to the Holy Spirit about the power of God. So the power of God is never for personal gain, nor ours to control. That when Jesus has died, rose again, and if you repent of your sins, believe in him, you are baptized into his name, the Holy Spirit begins to live in you. But the Holy Spirit is not given to you to build up you. The Holy Spirit is not given so that you can make a great name for yourself. The Holy Spirit is not given to you so that you can do some cool tricks and impress your friends and be like, yo, don't you want to join my club? The Holy Spirit is always given to you to help you follow God. 
to fulfill his mission, to lift up his kingdom. And it's never for ours to control. We don't get to dictate how God moves. We don't get to point and say, God, actually, we need you to go over there and fix that thing because we have decided down here, your little measly servants, that this is how we want. That's not what is being said here, other than the power of God is not ours to control. So why does Luke include this portion then? Think of the uniqueness of this event. Think about the gospel for the first time being given to the Gentiles leaving Jerusalem, and not just to any cats, the last people they would want to share the gospel with, the last people they would want to worship with, the last people they want joining in in the family of God. And so Peter and John are sent so that they can take the word back to affirm, no, 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 even the Samaritans belong to the family of God. Even those who don't look like us, act like us, even those we have a natural disdain and disgust for, God loves them, Jesus died for them, and they are welcome, and we now worship with them. It is to ordain the fact that the gospel is for everyone. But wait, there's more. Picking up in verse 26, we learn about a new character here to kind of compel this idea even further. Skip with me to chapter 8, verse 26. It says, now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all of the treasury of Canadake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home, sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. We'll learn that it's actually from Isaiah chapter 53. Skip with me though at verse 34. It says, when the eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is this prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told them the good news, the gospel about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down from the water and Philip baptized him. If you've got young kids in the room, I'm going to give you about three seconds to encourage them to plug their ears because I'm about to explain what a eunuch is. Three, two, one. A eunuch was someone who had no testicles. And this was not a choice of their own. They were chosen before the age of puberty so that they could serve the royal court. So this would have been a young man chosen before he had the age of, uh, of puberty and they would have castrated him with the sole purpose of being a servant to the queens. This meant he would have looked like a man as he grew up, but he would probably have no hair on his arms. He would have had no testosterone running through his body. It was done because they were deemed safe. It was done because they were deemed as someone who wouldn't try to take advantage of the queens of Ethiopia. What was one of the key markers and distinctions of being a Jewish man? Circumcision. So here we have a man from a far off distant land. In that known world, they would have said that Ethiopia was the most distant place on the entire globe. That they would have said it is at the end of the world where the sun declines. So here you have a man from a far off distant land who they've probably never seen or heard of before. And in he walks. And he also cannot live in a manner in which somebody who would have deemed themselves Jewish or a proselyte to Judaism, he cannot even, if he wanted to, be able to fit in. 
Chapters 1 through 7 of the book of Acts paint this picture that the church started in Jerusalem. And for seven chapters, what we mainly see is Jews joining in. We see Jews uh, accepting Jesus as the Messiah. They were seeing people who looked like them, act like them, talk like them from the regions that they were from. That it was Jews becoming Christians, so to speak, because Jesus had come, revealed himself as Messiah. Then boom, chapter 8 comes along. And now all of a sudden, we've got the blood feud people. We've got sorcerers, we've got eunuchs who are now in the family, in the kingdom of God. It's a beautiful chapter of what the church is called to be, is it not? We can put it this way when it comes to chapter 8 of the book of Acts. This is where we see the church goes from mirrored glass to a stained glass mosaic. Up until this point, the church would have felt like mirrored glass that whenever you walked in, Whenever you sat down, whenever you walked by, you'd virtually be seeing yourself. People who looked like you from the same regions as you, you get the picture. And then in one chapter, virtually what seems overnight or in just a few days, weeks, maybe perhaps a month, it becomes this beautiful mosaic of different colors, different shapes, different regions, different people now that are forming the kingdom of God. It's like one of the coolest chapters in all of scripture of what the kingdom of God is called to be. People who never belonged now belonged. People who were probably told that you don't get to sit with us now are saying, and actually, Jesus told me I can sit here. That people who never probably even felt like they could ever grace the, 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 the threshold of the church of God are now finding boldness and confidence. I don't know if you ever went to church camp as a kid. Um, maybe you did, maybe you didn't. Um, and uh, one of these things that always happened at church camp as a kid, they would usually bring in a guest speaker who would give you one of those crazy testimonies. You know those testimonies where the person's like, yo, so my name's Steve. If your name is Steve, I'm sorry. I just, it's like the proverbial Steve in all my made-up stories. At age 12, I was chain-smoking four packs a day. Age 14 got into some marijuana. Age 15, before I could even drive, I was hustling drugs in my school and everyone knew me as the kingpin. And then at 18, I had to keep this habit going because I got into heavier stuff. And so I tried to knock over a bank, but I got caught. And so they threw me in prison. And while I was in prison, shanked a few dudes threatened to, to beat up all of the COs there. And then one day as I was sitting in my bed and I woke up, a Bible just appeared on my lap and it said, repent and believe. And here I am today. I am here to tell you that Jesus is real. I don't know if you ever heard a testimony like that before. They're, they're out there. They're real. They're super awesome. That's what I imagine the church being like in Acts chapter 8 that next Sunday. Someone walks in, hey, good to see you. I've never seen you around before. What's your story? Well, yeah, just a few weeks ago, you know, Johnny and Steve, you know, your friends that, 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 that were killed because they were sharing the gospel. Yeah, 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 that was me. Um, didn't like that, but, you know, but then I heard their gospel. I saw their joy as I was taking their life, and I thought to myself, I want what they have. I've got to believe, and so here I am. You think that's nothing? My name's Simon. I used to be demon-possessed, and I used to try to get other people demon-possessed, and we would shout incantations, and then all of a sudden this dude named Philip came, and he showed me a real power with real strength and real availability, and I recounted all of that, and now I believe. And then in walks the eunuch. He goes, you guys ready for my story? I've got a real doozy for you. Like, it's incredible to see that it goes from this thing where everyone kind of looked the same, acted the same, from the same region to now. 
everyone is welcome and everyone belongs. Here's the truth we pull out of this is that if the gospel is for everyone, then the church needs to be too. Let me say that again. That if the gospel of Jesus Christ is for everyone, then by golly, the church needs to be too. Period. End of discussion. No footnotes, no asterisks, no nothing. If the gospel is for everyone, then the church, including our church, First Christian Church of Champaign and Urbana, needs to be for everyone too. The gospel was not limited to a particular race, not to a a political party, not to certain people who grew up in a certain area, and so then the same thing is to the church. That the gospel is for anyone by grace through faith who repents of their sin and believes. They are welcomed into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, one body, many members. The members don't look the same. They don't have the same function. They have different parts. They have different purposes. But together, they welcome in the kingdom of God. You see, in Acts chapter 8, there's a lot we could focus on in this chapter. We could say, well, how do you remain bold in the face of persecution as they were being scattered because they were being killed and martyred for their faith, yet they still continued to preach? How do you do that? We could say, well, what's the role of the Holy Spirit in baptism? We could have pulled on that for like another seven hours, but trust me, you don't have the time. I do, but you don't, you know, but you know, you get the idea. We could say, how can someone be saved like Simon and then still have some pretty heavy junk going on wanting to buy the Holy Spirit for his own personal gain? But that's not what I want to focus on. What I want to focus on here this morning for, for us, for First Christian Church, our church family, is the honor that it is to be one of your pastors. And the beauty it is that we get to be a church called to preach the gospel and to live as that body. You and I both know it's not easy being a Christian in this climate. You almost cannot take a stance on anything without tar and feathers coming your way. And as the church, we are called to remember that the gospel is for everyone. And if we fail to recognize who the true enemy is in our world and culture, we lose the battle. Because the real enemy out there The real enemy outside these walls, the real enemy outside our body of Christ is not other people. The real enemy is Satan. The real enemy is sin. The real enemy is Satan trying to take things of sin and perpetuate them and and, and get people to turn on each other. And he does a pretty good job sometimes, even getting Christians to fight with one another. If we fail to recognize, especially in our world, in our climate, in our context today, who the real enemy is, we will lose the battle every single time. And what Acts chapter 8 says, you want to know who the enemy is? It's not those people. You want to know who the enemy is? It's not them over there. You want to know who the enemy is? It's not the people from that different region, that different state, that different political party. The enemy is sin. And the gospel is for everyone. Think about what our culture is crying out for. Pick a subject. Pick a topic. Your choice. I'd venture to guess that one of two things, if not both of these things, that everyone is crying out for on each side, which is love, and justice. And what the gospel says, if you want to provide love and justice for all people, don't forget where the true source of love and justice comes from. Love and justice is not found in a political party. 
Love and justice is not necessarily found in a system or a new policy. Love and justice is found in its purest and most fundamental and eternal state in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love Acts chapter 8 because it's this idea that if they took the gospel to them, then they were probably okay with it going to literally anyone else throughout time. So what about us today? Here's how I want to apply Acts chapter 8 for us this morning. I've entitled this message in this section, this simple thing, three quick things for us this morning, but it's how to impact someone you'd rather not. My guess is there's people in your life that you'd rather not impact them for the gospel. There's people in my life, if I was being 100% honest, I'd be like, yeah, can someone else do that? You really think Philip wanted to go to Samaria? You think he wanted to go talk to Simon the sorcerer? You think he wanted to go up to the eunuch? But he did. Because the gospel is for everyone. Three things. Number one that we are called to do as we live this out. Walk with Jesus before you walk or work for Jesus. Walk with Jesus so that when that time comes, you are bold and confident in your faith and the power of God to work for Jesus. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, he offers up these, I'm sorry, in Colossians chapter 4, he offers up these words. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. You ever have a, a car without power steering? Uh, for a season in like two years of college, I had a Kia Rio. You can look them up online. It's 2004 Kia Rio. I'm pretty sure they're not actually technically cars. They're just like high-powered golf carts that happen to be fully enclosed. Like one point, I was like, it might be better just to take out the driver's seat and drive from the back. And I'm not a big dude. And this thing had no bells and whistles, okay? It, was, it, had, it didn't have power steering. It was a stick manual shift, whatever one. Some people say stick shift. Some say manual. Some say standard. Depends on what region you're from. And you had to crank the windows. You get this. You had to unlock the doors with your hand. <gasps> Telling you, persecution at its finest, am I right? And it was the crazy thing learning to drive that because when you are like in a parking lot and you're going like one mile an hour, you're getting like this four-hour workout where you're like, yeah, 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 cool, I moved like three inches. And you had to like breathe and you had to like take some like pre-workout just to drive. Like it was intense. But then you would notice that as you drove, you almost didn't notice that it didn't have power steering. So I rolled a lot of stop signs for a couple years. No, don't tell anyone. The same thing goes in our walk with Jesus. It's very difficult for God to move a parked heart. It's very difficult for God to move us somewhere, do something in our life if we are not moving. If we have not devoted ourselves to prayer, if we are not seeking him in his word, if we are not committed to the, a local body to worship along with other believers. If you want to see God do something radical in your life, Start striving for him. Walk with him. And then when the Holy Spirit nudges you, hey, go to Samaria. It's the only way you're going to move. Hey, go find that guy named Simon. 
Share with him my gospel. Hey, by the way, I need you to now go down to Gaza and you're going to find a eunuch. God cannot move a parked heart. We have to be moving. We need to pray for open doors, opportunity. And it might be a nudge to leave your comfort zone. Number two, is our attitudes and actions build bridges for truth. You've probably heard the phrase that people don't care what you know until they... Let's try that again. That's your sign of your turn. I've done a lot of talking here. People don't care what you know until they know... Until they know that you are care. Sometimes as Christians, we think we're absolved from that. Well, I've got the truth. So I can say things however I want. I can post whatever I like because it's the truth. And Jesus says, no, 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 you present the truth in the same manner I would present the truth, which is in love and grace. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 24 says, that is, however, the way of life you learned, when you heard about Christ and you were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the self, new self, created to be like God in the righteousness and holiness. Our truth is never heard unless our attitudes and actions meet that of Christ. It's not enough to have the right truth. We must build bridges with having good attitudes and actions, especially to outsiders. That means that you should not, that I probably should not, get up and ever talk about X, form an opinion and post it wherever I want or talk without first asking, but is my attitude and my actions in the same manner of Christ? Number three on how to influence someone you'd rather not, we're going to close here this morning, is that to show others that faith begins with what Jesus did for them, not what they must do. Show others that faith begins with what, other, what Jesus did for them, what Jesus has done for them, not what they must do. It would have been interesting to see if Simon, or sorry, Philip went up to Simon and say, here's the gospel, here's where this power comes from, but Simon, before you get to belong to this family, you've got to fix this, you need to readjust that You need to say sorry to all the people that you've wronged. Then you get to belong. I can't help but think probably in that Acts chapter 8 church that next Sunday, as those people started to walk in, there was probably something going through the minds of the people who had been there a long time to say, what are they doing here? Man, I don't know. They they don't live like it. I know for a fact what they were doing last week. He killed my friend. Shouldn't they need to change before they're brought in? And Jesus says, that's not the way it works in my family. My job is to change them. My job is to transform their hearts. My job is to convict them. Your job is to love them. Your job is to share the truth of the gospel with your attitudes and actions so that they hear it because I want as many people to receive that good news. Your job is to remind them of my blood. Your job is to remind them that I died on the cross for their sins just like yours. And your job is to remind them that if they repent and believe, they are now in your family. 
Our job is to remind people of what Jesus has done, not to say what they need to do to be in the family of God. The church is a beautiful thing. It's a messy thing. It goes against our sinful desires sometimes. But I am committed to this church being that type of church where anyone and everyone knows that they can hear the gospel. That people who have yet to even receive the gospel can come into this building or to go into Lincoln Square Mall and say, I don't know what it was about those Christians, but they're pretty different than a lot of the other Christians I meet. I felt welcomed. I felt loved. I felt cared for. They went above and beyond to show me grace, mercy, compassion, and I don't even believe what they believe yet. That's the type of church that we will be here at First Christian. Because the gospel is for everyone. This church will be too. Pray with me as we continue to worship this morning. Heavenly Father, you are good and you alone are worthy of our praise. Your gospel has found us in so many different places and so many different areas of our life and we worship you and you alone. We thank you, Lord, that you don't hold anything against us. By grace, through faith, we are welcomed into your family. Thank you for showing us that thousands of years ago, both Jews and Samaritans were brought into your family, that the power of God supersedes it all. May we be Christians. May we be disciples. May we be the church where we kneel to your throne, where the flag we fly above them all is the flag, the party of the Lamb. You are the Lamb of God who has slain for us and has given us new life. Thank you. Thank you for that gospel. Thank you for that truth. We worship you this morning. It's a shame that we pray. Amen.